Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week, Madeline Davies talks to Rupert Short about his new book, Does Religion Do More Harm Than Good? It's published by SPCK. We publish an extract in this week's paper and a review in our books pages. The book is available from the Church Times bookshop for £9. Go to chbookshop.co.uk. Rupert Short is religion editor of the Times Literary Supplement and the author of critically acclaimed books including God is No Thing, Christianophobia and Rowan's Rule, the biography of the Archbishop. Elsewhere in this week's paper, the BBC's parliamentary correspondent Mark Darcy writes about how Brexit has created paralysis at Westminster. We have an extract from Peter Stanford's book on angels, and the Lent series on the fall continues with Alison Milbank on the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Read all this and much more by subscribing. Try five issues for a fiver. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So I thought we'd start by looking at a poll from 2017, uh, which found that 62% of people in Britain agreed with the statement, religion does more harm in the world than good. So I wondered how sympathetic you are to those people. Can you understand why such a high percentage of people do hold that view? I can, yes, even though I don't agree with it. I recall a comment made by Karen Armstrong, I think, Uh, in one of her books, which was that uh, time and time again, groups of people, London cabbies, psychiatrists, Oxford academics, they would all blame all of the great conflicts of human history on religion. And uh, there's um, quite a short-circuiting going on there. Uh, In terms of history, you need to be You need the patient sociological analysis that would disentangle the different elements in a given conflict, ethnic, linguistic, uh, economic sometimes. But it doesn't amaze me that um, people down in the dog and duck or wherever uh, just have a a knee-jerk idea that religion is harmful. And may I just add that, uh, of course, journalists bear a heavy part of the blame for that. We need to be conscious of the corruptions of our trade and in particular to the way that bad news tends to sell newspapers. Mm -hmm. A volcanic eruption is news. The underground streams providing unseen irrigation and stability of life for many people over many generations, that ain't news, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't get reported and I think I think that is one of the difficulties in perceptions of religion. Yeah. And is there a kind of central misapprehension or myth that you were seeking to refute when you wrote the book? Do you think there's sort of one particular misunderstanding that you were coming across that you thought I really need to rebut this? Not not one in particular and I want to say that I've um, try to be as objective as possible. Uh, I think religion does do an awful lot of harm, or people do an awful lot of harm in in the name of religion, as well as good. A central misapprehension. I think that if I had to choose between principled atheism and the petty despot worshipped by a good many people in various traditions over the centuries, then I would probably go for principled atheism Mm. to be honest I'm not uh, wanting to try to to make light of the the great harm done by religion 
But if if there's one one particular misapprehension or, or, or one more important one, it might be something to do with science, actually. There, there's something um, known as the subtraction thesis, and it's an assumption that seems to be very common among secular humanists that everything good about contemporary society in terms of rights, intellectual openness and what have you, that can be ascribed to secular enlightenment. This is a view very much associated with Steven Pinker, for example. We can scrape away the icing or the candy floss supplied by religion and the the main ingredients of the cake there are all available to secular reason. Now, to adjust the metaphor slightly, I would want to emphasize much more the way that religion has raised us to the branches that we now perch on. Um, first of all, it was Islam, actually, in the classical period of, of, of Islam up until about the 13th century. The Muslim world was very much in the vanguard intellectually. After that, it went into a, a period of decline and, and the baton was passed to the Christian world. But anti-God botherers, if, if I can put it rudely like that, never seem to ask themselves why it was that modern science arose in a Christian culture. I, I would say that that isn't accidental. Mm. There's a deeply ingrained narrative that there's been a tension between science and religion from the word go. It would be much more accurate to say that the people who created the, the modern world, Descartes, Newton, Leibniz, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, they were all very devout people with serious theological interests. I'm not saying that there hasn't been conflict between science and religion uh, through stupidity on, on both sides, if, if the truth be told. But um, in point of fact, that conflict arose later. It wasn't so much in evidence, actually, in the early modern period. Mm, great. Um, I guess kind of on the, on the other side of the scale, I was wondering when you were kind of surveying religion's track record for the book, um, were there particular episodes um, or issues that you kind of considered to be the strongest evidence of harm? Um, were there sort of moments when you were writing it where you thought this is sort of a very heavy weight in the other scale? I am very aware that religion can form an intellectual straitjacket. I mean, it, it has done a lot in the Christian world in the past, and it does in the Muslim world. At, at the moment, and also I, I would say that the Hindu world, the the um, uh, instability that we're seeing in in India at the moment is is very much connected with with toxic religion shading into nationalism. Sadly, I think a, a lot of the good done in the in the name of religion tends to get overlooked for reasons that I've already indicated. Mm. If the local mosque or the local church across a vast belt of the world is also the hub for the distribution of aid, medicine and education, if honeycombing around the edge of the global megacity, thousands upon thousands of Pentecostal communities are springing up which are 
providing liberation for, for women especially, as well as for men. If as a consequence of that, just bracketing for one side, uh, to, uh, f- uh, to one side for, for a moment, the question of the truth of Christianity or of Pentecostalism, the sheer social capital engendered by that tradition strikes me as very, very remarkable. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of people here, most of them very, very poor, a great many of them getting their lives on track when their lives have been very chaotic beforehand. A faith like Pentecostalism is the Christian counterpart to Islamic revivalism, but it's resolutely, resolutely non-violent, and and for that reason, among others, it tends to be completely neglected by the Western media. I'm really conscious that we're doing this interview in in the wake of the attack on the mosque in Christchurch. Um, And afterwards, um, I think many people were very shocked by a statement from an Australian senator who described Islam as a violent ideology that justified endless war um, and called it the religious equivalent of fascism. Um, We've also had people arguing that they're proud to be Islamophobic, that it's an ideology that they are afraid of and hate. Um, And I wondered what your thoughts are on how we can analyse and discuss Islam as a religious and political system um, without contributing to that climate of hate um, and some of the sort of terrible incidents that that can give rise to. Sure. Uh, No issue could be more important to my mind. And... You're right that the subject needs to be tackled sensitively, but also uh, I think you're correct in in indicating, at least indirectly, that this is a subject that nevertheless needs to be faced up to. Let me approach this more as a reporter than as an advocate, because um, it, it, it um, it is a tricky one. I would say that there are large areas of conceptual overlap between all three of the Abrahamic faiths and that therefore Christians and Muslims especially do have uh, a a good deal in common. I think to to move from that to a sort of wishy-washy, well, we all think it's nicer to be nice than to be nasty. We all believe in doing good. And so both traditions are completely positive, is buck passing because although both religions lay a great deal of emphasis on on victory, the focus in Islam is more uh, on victory in the world as opposed to Christianity's stress on on victory over the world. And there, there is a big difference there in in attitudes to to violence. I I can remember Rowan Williams, who I I suppose is the last person who could ever be accused of Islamophobia, saying in in one of his diocesan um, letters when he was a bishop in in Wales, uh, Islam is not an inherently violent religion, but it it sets a great deal of store by, by victory conceived in this worldly terms. In my book, I take what I see as a a middle position between clash of civilization people on on the one hand who are highly critical of of Islam and others on on the other hand who want to make light of this challenge and to say that it's all really about politics rather than about religion. And 
I, I would say this in a nutshell, that the trouble with Islamism isn't that it's too Islamic, but rather that it isn't Islamic enough. That's to say, rather in the way that Christian fundamentalists in the deep south of America have tended to leapfrog over centuries of tradition and, and go back to the unmediated text as they see it without very much sense of where the text came from and how interpretation has evolved over time. Likewise, Islamists tend to bypass centuries of careful exegesis of the text in which, among other things, careful distinctions arose between um, passages in the Quran that were considered valid for all time as against other passages that had to be uh, viewed as context specific and in the hullabaloo of recent years what, what's been lost is that quieter, older, deeper what's known as the Balkans to Bengal strand of Islam that has always actually been much more intellectually sophisticated. The difficulty as you know uh, is that a, a rather fierce brand of Islam has spread thanks to the economic importance of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was a bit of a backwater uh, 100, 200 years ago, but it's been in a much stronger position over the past five decades or so to export a pretty hard-line strand uh, of the faith, um, including, sadly, very contentious textbooks saying um, all sorts of very troubling things about non-Muslims and about science and, and various other developments, which I, I would say don't and need, need not belong to, to true Islamic currents of thought. In the um, book, you suggest that when people say that Islam is in need of a reformation, um, I know your argument in the book is that actually that's already that's already taken place, um, and that you have a sort of a slightly different prescription for the direction that you'd like it to take. Yes, it doesn't need a reformation. It's it's Islam has been going through a de facto reformation for. Uh, over 200 years, with consequences that have been as blood-soaked as the European Reformation. What it needs, as I say, is is to rediscover its classical roots. Is Islamists are not going, uh, or violent jihadists at any rate, are not, are not going to give up their toxic ideas for secular liberal reasons, but they, they may well do so for authentic Islamic reasons. And that's why I think a, an organisation like the Quilliam Foundation uh, plays such an important role in this country. One of the themes in um, Karen Armstrong's book, Fields of Blood, um, is that the secular state has also proved to be capable of terrible violence. Um, and then I was thinking about the Pascal quote, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And I wondered if you agree with that Pascal quote, or do we tend to um, not pay enough attention to the potential for violence in a secular state? Well, given that I believe that human beings are pretty sinful, messed up creatures, it doesn't surprise me either that 
a great deal of violence has taken place in, in secular regimes and in religious ones. I think uh, one, one implication of your question is that secularists who like to blame everything on religion and to imply that the world would be a trouble-free place if, if only we, we got rid of God, they need a reality check. If, um, if the Spanish Inquisition can be blamed on Christianity, then excuse me, the gulag can be blamed on, on the Enlightenment. And uh, Le- Le- Lenin is one of the children of the Enlightenment. And if, if you don't, um, if, if you think that uh, secularism is free of uh, violent impulses, then excuse me, just consult the lyrics of the, the Marseillaise. The 20th century, as you know, was the most blood-soaked period in, in the whole of, of human history. When people commit violence out of religious conviction, which of course they're doing in in many parts of the world now, take a country like Nigeria, I think I'd say two things. One one is, uh, see previous remarks again, how far is this actually a religious conflict? Mm -hmm. But secondly, in as much as it is religious, how far do the traditions that we're talking about contain the antidotes to their own poison and the the churches it has to be said in in dialogue with secularism as well as through a recovery of their their own resources have developed a, a much better record since the second world war I, I i confess i think it it's partly connected with guilt over christian collusion and the holocaust mm. but the churches at least have become a lot more humble and self-critical over the past 70 years. And they, 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 they provide some, some very good um, intellectual machinery, I think, for conflict resolution. You could argue in some respects that the, the problem with Christianity isn't that it's too worldly, at, at least not to begin with. The difficulty wasn't that it was too, too worldly, but it wasn't worldly enough. The the angle of transcendence, as it has been called, is sharpest of all in Christianity and, and in Buddhism. And in the same way that Islam perhaps needs to become a bit less worldly, uh, the church is needed to become more worldly in some ways. That's why, of course, you had the evolution, for instance, of just war teaching. Then the church's cutting a very long story short became much too complacent during the period of Constantinian Christianity and Christendom. I'm pleased and relieved to say that a lot of the the mainstream churches now have pretty commendable records. Um, I wanted to ask something about um, religious literacy or maybe the lack thereof. Um, I think it was in 2016 2016, the Archbishop of Canterbury said, if we treat religiously motivated violence solely as a security issue or a political issue, then it will be incredibly difficult, probably impossible, to overcome it. A theological voice needs to be part of the response, and we should not be bashful in offering that. Um, And he went on to say that it was wrong to say that ISIS had nothing to do with Islam, 
or that the Christian militia in the Central African Republic had nothing to do with Christianity. Um, do you think that there is a deficit within the UK as you become more secular, um, whereby we struggle to um, perceive the religious elements of, of kind of global politics and perhaps we've lost that theological voice? Yes, I do. I, I don't think that religious literacy is very high. In my book, I talk about the way that a, a common sense answer to the question, does religion do more harm than good, might be to say, well, good, good religion by definition is a positive force and bad, bad religion is uh, pretty negative. That is unlikely to satisfy the secularist because although you can say there's good patriotism, religion is another form of kinship bond like patriotism and just as there's good patriotism and bad patriotism for example good families and toxic families there's there's good religion and bad religion indeed good good carbs and bad carbs or good good diets and bad diets that won't satisfy the atheist who is likely to say but at least something like patriotism trades on something tangible whereas religion is is pie in the sky by definition so I've engaged in a little bit of philosophical footwork to try to, if not win over the person who thinks that religion is inherently harmful because it rests on, on false beliefs, but at least to try to demonstrate that the intellectual case for belief is more robust than many people think, and that however many scientific questions we answer, there will always be questions about meaning and value. Hum human understanding is not exhausted by mapping the world of nature. We will always ask bigger questions about how, what the good life consists in, and I think from, from there the, the quest for the transcendent is, is never likely to, to go away. And uh, that's a rather indirect way of answering your question and saying that religion should be taken more seriously, I think, at, a, at an intellectual level and, and not just simply seen as a, a matter of community identity. I was thinking about the fact that the question raised by your book um, will often take place within a conversation with an individual. So we can have these um, sort of abstract conversations, but it might be that you're talking to an individual. Um, and it might be that that individual's own experience of religion has been extremely harmful. It might be a member of the LGBT community or a woman who's experienced an extremely um, sort of misogynistic um, form of religion. Um, how would you advise somebody to go about kind of making the case without being overly defensive? Because I think sometimes people of faith can try and shut down these conversations and not perhaps listen to individual experience. Um, and there will be some people, perhaps if they weigh up this scale in their own lives, will feel that the scales fall very heavily towards harm. Yes. Well, I don't think it's part of Christian belief to, to imagine that the that the church can't be a harmful institution. Classically, a distinction is drawn, as you know, between uh, the church as a divine society instituted by Christ on the one hand and the church as a fallible organisation full of sinful human beings. So if somebody has had 
a very bad experience of the church. They may want to try a different church. They may be fed up with religion altogether. People come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, don't they? I mean, there, there are lots of people, certainly in the, the rather secular Fleet Street circles that I move in, who have no time for religion at all. I mean, they, 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 it, it's not even that they've really considered it and found it wanting. I mean, they're, they're, they, they just, they're, there isn't a God-shaped hole in their lives and they don't consider that they need one. So there's one kind of conversation to be had with that sort of person. There are lots of people who say, why can't I live a good life um, without being a paid-up member of a faith community? And the answer to that is, you can. I mean, the church classically has taught that um, conscience is the exercise of reasoned judgment, and so you, you can... There's nothing uh, in Christianity to say that you can't be a good person without professing Christian belief. I think the, 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 the deeper question is where the scaffolding lies. In point of fact, almost all human societies have been religious down the centuries and believe themselves to be undergirded by the creative power and will of God, however conceived. And I think in a, a climate that is often criticised for being more relativistic, there's perhaps a question mark if we're talking more and more about, I think this is right because it suits my cultural convenience and preference, about whether moral principles can be deeply enough embedded in the, the longer term. And then on a, a more practical level, that, that would perhaps be a bit more of a philosophical or theological consideration. On a more practical level, it does tend to be the communities of conviction which hone the vision and provide the structuring in terms of the ordering of a community, the galvanizing of impulses to, to do good and to, uh, to, 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 to love your, your neighbour. Um, but heavens above, I mean, if, if you've had a terrible experience of the church or the mosque or wherever, you may well need to take a, a break. I, I get that. Mm. Um, a very live conversation in the Church of England, um, I guess, is about its future as an established church. Um, and there are many who argue that um, it could perhaps do um, more good and less harm if it was a kind of more radical um, church on the edge of society, so losing its power and influence. Um, and people talk about maybe there's a necessary death and resurrection that the church is being called to. And there are others who are sort of very nostalgic for a time when the church was kind of at the heart of the society. Um, it occupied kind of the corridors of power and enjoyed great influence. Um, and I wondered, kind of looking back over history, um, what's your sense about the possible harms or goods of being either kind of a radical fringe church or occupying that power and influence and being sort of very tied up with, um, with power? Well, you're talking to a, a Roman Catholic and uh, of partly Irish stock. So I see my own country as, a, as an outsider as well as an insider. Unlike 
most of my fellow Catholics. However, <laughs> I'm not starry-eyed about uh, belonging to a, a body with a lot of power and influence because I partly grew up in Spain. And that's to say I do uh, have some experience of being a part of a church which was to all intents and purposes established even though not formally so and I know that a great number of my friends in Spain feel uh, a lot of hurt shading into contempt for the Catholic Church especially uh, because of its uh, co collusion with the powers that be on, under the Franco regime. I wouldn't want to stick my oar in too far um, because of my own allegiance uh, into debates about the establishment of the Church of England, al although half of my family are Anglicans and I, I did attend Anglican schools. I think I, I would draw on the, the wisdom of Rowan Williams, who, who, when asked whether he's in favour of establishment, would, would tend to say, well, I grew up in a disestablished church in Wales, it's not, not the end of the world to be disestablished. But very often people calling for disestablishment have got an agenda that is trying to um, banish the religious voice to the margins. And I think the, the problem with that is that what you can end up with is some rather angry, resentful faith groups talking to each other, talking to themselves, but feeling rather excluded, when it's probably healthier, ultimately, to have these voices more in the public square, being precisely being held more accountable, not to impose their views on, on other people, um, if they're in a minority, but at any rate to, to, to be heard and to engage in the cut and thrust. Mm. Um, just finally, I wanted to ask you to kind of cast your um, sight forward. Um, so I think sometimes in Britain we can forget how vibrant religion is in other parts of the world. Um, and Eric Kaufman has done a study of demographics um, called The Religious Shall Inherit the Earth, noting the birth rate and the fact that many people of faith, um, particularly in other parts of the world, have high numbers of children. And so we can expect um, the world to remain a very religious place overall. And I wondered, as you look ahead, um, how do you see that shaping our world for good or for ill? Um, it's not just... Uh, because believers tend to have more children. It's because of precisely things like democratization, modernization, globalization. Several generations ago, in various parts of the world, from Egypt and Turkey to India and elsewhere, Algeria, sadly, there was an idea that religion would naturally fade away, it was primitive, it belonged to an uneducated past, and that the future lay with, with secularism. Secularism was imposed from above by elites, and look what's happened. Mm. Religion has come back to bite them in the form of fundamentalism. I quote the increasingly well-known statistic, three quarters of, the, of humanity professes a, a religious faith now, that figure is scheduled to reach the 80% uh, mark by the middle of this century. And uh, by that time, China will, will have become 
the largest Christian and, and Muslim society on earth. So it's all the more important that faiths like Islam and Christianity, I, I genuinely believe that the, um, you know, in the, in the same way that uh, ideological struggle was rather a hallmark of the 20th century, then the um, evolution of the 21st might well be decided by whether Christians and Muslims can, can get on well together, and both faiths are, are growing fairly strongly. It's, it's very, very vital that they should use the resources that they have to promote stable, um, convivial uh, coexistence, that's the word that, that I'm looking for, uh, a subject that we haven't touched on, sadly, I don't think there's been um, time for, is the persecution of Christians in Muslim-majority countries. And religious minorities, sadly, have never been full equals in, in Muslim-majority countries, or at least hard, hardly ever. And so that, that, that is a big challenge. I'm not necessarily optimistic. I'm, I'm hopeful. But... There's work to be done, most certainly. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.